This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite philosophy, history, pop culture podcast. As always, I am excited to be here today. Um, I'm going to start today with a somber note, if you'll permit me. Of course. September is National Suicide Awareness Month. It is a month where we should all take a moment out of our day to remember those and discuss how to prevent suicide as we mourn those that we lost via suicide. And I don't know if there's anything more tragic than the person who takes their own life. In particular, when we reflect and think these things could and often are preventable and depression is treatable. In that vein, I wanted to kick this off with a few fundamental questions that I think philosophically we all have to wrestle with. And one of those questions is, what is the value of human life? I know that's a big fucking question, and it's not an easy one to answer for some. For others, it's very easy. But I think that's going to permeate through our discussion today as we ruminate on suicide, not a bright topic, very heavy topic, and where that intersects with storytelling. And for us, us being me, Derek, and my co-host, the lovely Laurel, we really wanted to talk about Robin Williams. Because in 2014, we were, most of us were shocked to find out that Robin Williams was mentally ill and he committed suicide. And we thought no better way to honor and discuss Robin Williams' prolific and great career as it pertains to Suicide Awareness Month than to discuss the movie that came out in 1989, The Dead Poets Society. I want to thank you for that intro and for making us all aware, of course, that we are talking about this in a very relevant time when we are all asked to call attention and to bring our attention to the very real uh, 
very real task of suicide prevention in those that we love and those that we know and those that we don't know. Um, this is an interesting podcast for us to jump into because uh, we are looking at not only, you know, a piece of art, a piece of storytelling, but we're looking at the artist behind it. And it's something that we have done before in an eerily prescient way on the podcast because one of the uh, only other times that we've really looked at the intent of the artist or the life of the artist before is when we talked about Vincent van Gogh last year. And there's a very interesting correlation between Vincent van Gogh and Robin Williams in that we saw great and beautiful art coming from someone who was deeply, deeply sad um, and in a tremendous amount of personal pain. Uh, so this is going to be an emotional topic for us, but I think we are excited to uh, try to unpack these layers and see what our stories can tell us, what gifts they can give us in terms of determining how we react and how we preserve, how we prevent, and how we truly care for those who surround us and what value we place on our lives and theirs. Um, I think the jumping off point for this, if you listen to last week's episode, we talked a little bit in the boomerangarang about General Lafayette, the Marquis de Lafayette. Um, and it was, it came out of playing a fun game. Uh, but we talked about how amazing it would be to have had more life from that person. And I think we can say the same thing about so many great artists, so many great uh, politicians, so many great people who have graced our planet that it would be nice to have more life from them. Um, so that's kind of where we come into this episode. And as Derek said, we are going to do this through analyzing the story that's told uh, in Dead Poets Society, which if uh, if you haven't seen it in a while, it's definitely worth going back to revisit Dead Poets Society, a beautiful, beautiful film that um, in some ways doesn't totally hold up today, but in other ways is more relevant than other than ever. Um, so yeah, without much further ado, I think we should get started on talking about the movie. I just want to say right before, uh, if you're interested in joining this conversation, please join us on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We are on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we're on Facebook. You can also visit us on the web, www.midnightmyth.com, and drop us a line there. I know also we did a little research. I know you have it in your notes that if someone is feeling like they can't go on and they're at the point where they may feel like taking their own life is a wise decision, that there are some resources out there that anybody can, can reach out. And I wonder if you might, before we dive in, just share those. Absolutely. There are, are tremendous resources out there for you. As we said, this is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, um, but all year round is the time to be thinking about this. It's the time to uh, be actively involved in prevention, whether that is uh, is taking a scan of yourself, is understanding your place, or understanding the place of your loved ones and people that you come into contact with. So the most important things you can do or know the warning signs and risk of suicide um, in order to prevent that uh, in people around you, but also if you yourself are feeling depressed or are feeling like you have suicidal thoughts, please reach out to the uh, National Suicide Hotline, which is at 
1-800-273-TALK. That's 8255. If you or someone you know is in immediate crisis, call 911 immediately. Uh, and then I was recently just made aware of this particular resource. If you are uncomfortable talking on the phone and you do not feel inclined to call the National Suicide Hotline, you can text uh, the letters N-A-M-I to 741-741 and be connected to a free trained crisis counselor on the crisis text hotline. I think that's an amazing resource because if you're someone like me who has a little bit of anxiety about getting on the phone, but you truly need that help, they are still there for you in whatever way you need them to be there. So I'm going to kick this off with a midnight myth boomerang. Something that uh, if you listened to the podcast the entire time, you know what that means. But a long time ago, we were recording a podcast and I meant to say, I'm going to throw a curveball. But I said, I'm going to throw a boomerang. And it was great because everything came right back to us. And full circle. Everything comes full circle. So I'm going to start off with a boomerang. Humans didn't always value human life the way we do today. Mm. Some might argue that we maybe don't the way we say we do, but the very least, we are taught from a very young age that human life is the most precious thing on the planet. It's the most vital and important resource. Murder is the worst crime that we can commit. Um, in the ancient world, suicide was an acceptable practice. It was considered in many ways to be noble. And there are other cultures that have echoed this. Think of the uh, ancient Japanese culture, yeah. for example. In the ancient world, if in particular, I'm going to focus on Rome. In the ancient Roman world, if the all of your options were collapsing around you, and if you had erred and you had pissed off powerful people and the powerful people were coming after you, you always had the option to fall on your sword. And if you fell on your sword in a noble suicide, saying, hey, it's gotten bad, it's rough, but I'm going to take my own life, and the state was coming after you, the state would stop and they would respect your suicide and your family would be able to keep their property. For example, in the reign of Augustus, at one point he said to someone who was potentially trying to usurp the first Roman emperor, all he did was say, this person is no longer my friend. And then people started suing and coming after him. And then eventually this person committed suicide so his family could keep all their property. The idea being that if you meet your death nobly and bravely, there's honor and dignity in that act. Um, I say that because sometimes our attitudes towards suicide now come from a very dogmatic place, being right. like, you can't kill yourself, you can't kill yourself, you can't kill yourself. And maybe that's not always the right answer. Um, I can think of a few different moral examples. You, one, you're terminally ill. One, you're in inescapable physical pain. These are scenarios where maybe we should explore broader narratives where we don't dogmatically assume that you have to stay alive. However, I would like to submit that we can't model our morality all after the ancient Romans. Right because that was also a very brutal and cruel society. So if we want to be a more nobler society, if we want to be a society that values our neighbors, our friends, and our coworkers, and just the random person who lives across the street from you, we have to re-examine what this means, what it means 
to take your own life. The Dead Poet Society is ultimately a narrative about life and death. Yes. And how do you face the tremendous pressure of being alive for such a short time? For some of us, that pressure will destroy us, inevitably. For some of us, that pressure we will thrive in. And what Dead Poet Society gives us as an entry point is to look at all of the different perspectives. And I'm going to put myself out here and say, I didn't make it through high school without losing a few friends. Yeah. And the Dead Poet Society is about a group of friends who lose someone. And I want to just start there before we get into it. The idea that how we value human life changes over time. And there are scenarios and maybe in which our attitude about suicide should be different than it is today. Sure. But lastly, that I think there is no greater tragedy when there is needless death. Mm. And that's where I want to start our discussion, if that's okay with you. I, I think this is an amazing way to start this discussion because, you know, as you say, this this story, which has the word dead in the title and talks about history, is deeply concerned with that line between life and death and opens on a mural of a bunch of boys with rosy cheeks and uh, the same haircut and looking towards the horizon. It opens with potential, and potential is something that is carried throughout this story. We have a group of characters who are going to one of the best preparatory schools in the nation and who are cut out for great things. That is who they are. They are the future of America. And their potential is pretty much the only thing that most people see in these characters. Um, the, the kind of celebration of what they could grow to be is more important than who they are now to most of the people who surround them. Yet to that inner circle, to each other, who they are now is the greatest thing they will ever be. And so to begin uh, in, in this place, I think, is important to look at who they are now and not just who they are projected to be, who uh, you know their careers will take them to. We want to look at this moment in their life and what makes this moment so important. So let me give a few nuts and bolts about the movie. It came out in 1989, so this is definitely an older movie. Um, for those that haven't seen it yet, if you haven't got it now, we're going to spoil the living fuck out of it. So yeah, spoiler alert. Please go and see this movie. Don't let us rob you of the joy of it. It was directed by Peter Weir, who's done other movies that are pretty awesome. For example, he did Witness with Harrison oh, yeah, Ford. Yeah, yeah. He directed Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Great naval battle movie, like the greatest naval battle movie of all time, potentially. He also did The Truman Show. So, so good. This is a director that is comfortable in established genres and adding an extra layer, I think is yeah, his mark. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so... In many ways, the Dead Poet Society is the conventional coming-of-age story with an extra layer to it. And that extra layer is actual poetry, actual romance, convincing people to live real lives and the consequences of when that fails. You know, so he adds these extra layers to things um, that I think is really great as a director. And his body of work kind of reflects that. Yeah. 
it grossed $235 plus million worldwide in ticket sales. So in 1989, I'd say that's a success. But by no means, it's not like a, it's not the Dark Knight or a Spider-Man movie in terms right, of ticket of sales. It sits at 84% critic score in Rotten Tomatoes, 92% users. I think universally loved movie by, by most. Very few people see this movie and dislike it. Um, and it is considered to be, you know, of the of 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 Robin Williams, who is one of the greatest clowns, one of the greatest comedians of our time. It is considered to be the pinnacle of his work, which is an amazing thing to say about someone who is known for being a comedian who makes us laugh that a fairly serious film is is considered at the peak of the work that he did because the deepest and most emotional and most powerful work that he did was as a serious actor. Yeah. I would say as much as I love Robin Williams and everything that he has ever been in, even in a subpar movie, Robin Williams is the bright spot in it. I would say that for me, I would take dead poet society as his best performance absolutely, and not look back. Yeah. Um, and I know that he was in Aladdin. Great. I know Mrs. Doubtfire. Great. Like, I, I could just go on and on about Death how great smoochie. he is. Great. Great. You know, like <laughs> he's amazing in everything he has ever yeah. done. Even if he's in a bad movie, he is fantastic. But I do think this is probably his greatest. Yeah. Um, that's what per- I would say. S- single performance. And so let's get into the specifics. So let's talk a little bit about tradition, honor, discipline, and excellence. Uh, are those the banners that are seen being carried in by the boys to uh, to Welton Prep School at the beginning of the movie? Absolutely. This movie is fundamentally about boys going to the most exclusive prep school of exclusive prep schools. And it has four intellectual pillars. Discipline, honor, excellence, and I just said it. I forgot the last one. Tradition, honor, discipline, excellence. Thank you. It is about instilling these values into these few selected young men so that they can go on to college and become the next great men of society. We are talking about the elites of the elites of teenagers. The pressure for them to go out and become these great men is immense. And everybody, from the moment we start, everybody is pressuring them. I think one of the main uh, subtexts of this film is, hey, you've got to be something great, and that great thing that you've got to be is more important than the person you are. Yes, yeah. And actually, no one really gives a fuck about who you are anyway. Who you are is irrelevant. Who you will be is what matters. And the mechanism are these four values. Well, what's missing from tradition, discipline, excellence, and honor? In terms of values, what what's not there? Um, are you is this rhetorical or? Well, no, I'm I'm asking. Like to me, I look at that and say, all right, all of those things are are pretty good things to have. You yeah. need to have a sense of tradition. You exist in a culture. You're not unique in that respect. So you have to know your traditions if you're going to be su- successful, right? Discipline is important. You know, you need to control yourself. If you just, if you don't, you'll be, uh, you know, a glutton or a slovenly. Fair enough. Okay, I'll give you that. Honor means that there's some morality. Yeah. Right? That you have a code by which that you abide by. And excellent, like, hey, let's all be excellent. That sounds great to me. 
Strive to be the best version of yourself. But there's a big gaping hole in that, in these four pillars. And that's beauty. Yeah. Totally missing. And I wonder in a four pillars of an education that misses other other virtues such as beauty, such as truth, uh, such as love, all of these things missing enters in a teacher who believes in those things more than the four pillars. And we start to see the conflict between the great captain, Keaton, clashing against these four pillars, trying to shake these boys out of their preordained excellence and tell them you can actually be whatever the fuck you want to be. Yes. Enter John Keating, who says these four pillars are well and good and they may create a foundation, yet why even strive for this? Why care? Why give any of yourself to this unless there is something that sustains you, unless there is something that you can find value and passion in? And that is where beauty, aesthetic, romance enters this narrative is in saying that in crafting excellent individuals who honor tradition, who are disciplined and who, you know, find any kind of honor in their, in their work in crafting that person, you need to give them a why. Uh, and I can think of this so often in my own life. It's like, why would I follow these rules unless I can understand the why behind it? Like, follow this rule because there is this greater thing that motivates it. It creates a more well-rounded individual. It creates somebody who is able to think for themselves and who is able to suffuse their work, suffuse their career with goodness. So that is the value that we are all supposed to see in John Keating as a professor. And yet, if you are focused on those four pillars, tradition, honor, excellence, and discipline, Uh, above all else, and you don't leave room for that why, then you are going to be predisposed to uh, hate his unconventional methods, to hate his his shakeup of tradition. Absolutely. I totally agree. And, And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's not that when he walks in that he wants to discard these four values. Absolutely. He believes in he them. He respects them. He joins this institution because He's he believes Welton in them. He's a Welton graduate. But he also says there is another layer to this, and you have to learn to think for yourself. You have to be able to find your own voice in the cacophony of conformity. And because of that, it stirs a handful of these students Some of these students, you get the sense, don't really get it. But the main characters can't help but to be enticed. They can't help but want to know more. Something about the idea of march to your own drum. You know, something about the idea of find beauty in the ordinary. Find beauty in the divine. Ask yourself, what is the best version of yourself? Are you living it? And then ultimately... Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Yeah. His first lesson to the kids in the very first class when he takes them outside of the classroom and Keaton walks them on the halls and has them look at the pictures of the past graduates. He says they're worm food. He lets them all know you are going to die. His first lesson, remember 
you're going to die. And because of that, you have a limited amount of time. What are you going to do with the time? He gives them a sense of individualism, purpose, and localizes them in time. There's a great universe, and here is where you exist as this unit. What do you do with the time that you have? And challenges them in a way that no other professor does. We see before we get to Keaton's class, we see all of the other professors, and they all kind of look the same. They all kind of sound the same. They ask for brute memorization. They tell them, don't you question me or I will break you. Yeah. And they say, we're going to give you a soul-crushing amount of work. And then here comes a professor that says, have you contemplated your mortality yet? And he enters whistling the 1812 symphony. He enters whistling Tchaikovsky. He enters with an idea of transcendent art that breaks the pattern of the sort of rhythmic rote memorization of the previous uh, professors and gets them thinking outside of tradition, honor, discipline, excellence, gets them thinking outside of uh, conjugating Latin, outside of doing trigonometry, and into a world of everything is at your feet and you are able to make sublime sense of it. And here is one example in art, in music, in opening up your mind. Then he leads them out of the classroom to learn this carpe diem lesson. His unconventional methods serve more than anything to change the perspective. And he demonstrates this beautifully with the scene where they are all asked to stand on top of the desk at the front of the room just to look at things from a new angle. And the value of suffusing those four pillars with a new perspective, with a heightened level of engagement with your life, engagement with your identity, with yourself, is what he provides as an instructor. I think it's beautifully summed up, too, by um, the poem that he recites by Whitman, who he refers to multiple times within, uh, within this story. He calls him Uncle Walt. Uh, the, the poem is called O oh Me, O oh Life. And the quote here is that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. And then Keating says, what will your verse be? He places our entire existence within the, uh, the construct of a great piece of art that we are all participating in. He hearkens back to Shakespeare, all the world's a stage and all of us merely players. Uh, we all get a chance to offer something to the great narrative of history, the great narrative of art. And that particularly, that quote of what will your verse be, is something that I'm very interested within this story uh, and looking at it from the lens of this being Suicide Prevention Awareness Month and looking at the life that Robin Williams himself led and the life that ended, um, I'm interested in celebrating that uh, that concept, but also challenging it uh, of saying, you know, is the question really what will your verse be or is the question something different? Uh, are, should we be more concerned with the legacy that we leave on this earth or should we be more concerned with the life that we are living while we live it? That is a very, very big question. And I'm really glad that you raised that. And I think we might be able to answer that question if we look at the lives of each of the boys affected by Keaton's teachings. Yes. 
So undoubtedly, there are a few of his students that take his lessons a little further. So let's talk first about Todd, if you will. And I'd like to take the character Todd, who is best friends of Neil, who is a true introvert, who is shy, who dislikes the crowd. He says at one point to his friend Neil, when you say things, people listen. That's not me. Right? And I think, and we'll take Todd up until the point where he has his scene where he recites his poem in front of the class. Todd is deeply affected by the carpe diem, and he is the first student that we see the effects really of because after the class, when everyone else is doing homework, he's, he's trying to write his poem. He really wants to comprise his poem, and he really wants to comprise his, his verse, and he can't do it. He can't do it because he knows he has to speak in public. He can't do it because he knows that nobody will care. He feels like he has a verse to contribute to this world, but knows that nobody takes him seriously. And the reason, because he lives under the shadow of a great older brother. His parents give him the same birthday gift every year. Right, because they don't remember. He's just the younger brother of the, you know, the younger sibling of the greater older sibling. And he knows it. And that makes him sad and isolated. And maybe he could write a poem. And Professor Keaton sees something in him and says, I won't let you get away. And he covers his eyes and the camera circles as he forces a free verse poem out of the student. And eventually Keaton withdraws and just kneels before him, holding his chest as he listens to Todd's poem. And he realizes that there is a poet inside this, this kid. And to talk about, hey, what is more important, your legacy or your acts? With Todd, it's, it's who you are. It's about who you are in the moment. It's not about the legacy. The legacy for Todd is a relenting shadow that he lives under. And while he strives to be an individual, he doesn't have a voice. And Keaton finally gives him a voice. And that voice in that moment is what matters to Todd. And that is Keating's objective, right? Is to get each of these boys to sound his barbaric yop, uh, to quote Uncle Walt again, to develop their own voice, to develop individuality, and to find a way to communicate with others that says, this is my truth, and this is who I am, and this is how I will live. And he does this to varying degrees of success. With Todd, we see, of course, the most success in uh, in obtaining his objective in that he gives this boy the opportunity to find his voice, gives him, sets up the conditions for him to sound his yop. In Neil, we see a tremendous failure in the fact that, uh, that Keating is there to offer this opportunity to say, these are the conditions to create your own life and things don't work out and we lose the life of Neil in some of the other boys, we see these half-hearted tries, but we see these things come together in the end where we know even if things have not been entirely successful, although we know this year has been difficult, uh, Keating has succeeded in opening up a door for these boys that they did not know was there. 
So let's let's bring up Neil. So I'm glad I'm glad that you brought him up. So let's talk about Neil because other than Keating, Neil is the character that I think matters the most yes, to the overarching story. Absolutely, he is. I would say the main character um, of the boys. Um, Todd gets a lot of the the focus in the first part of the film. Uh, Neil gets a ton of focus. They focus on the stories of the other boys who are essentially using Keating's lessons to get laid. Yeah. Which is fine because they're boys. I mean, it's not cute. There's some really kind of gross stuff that happens in the middle of that film, but, um, yes, no, no argument for me. Yeah. But in terms of the meats and potatoes, Neil and Todd are the two that are the most actually impacted by the, the lessons. They're the most compelled to break out of their comfort. Yeah. So Neil hears carpe diem. Neil hears gather ye rosebuds. And Neil realizes I've never been my own person. Um, in the same way that Todd is, and what, which is why they're friends. Todd's always been in the shadow of his older brother. Neil has always been under the shadow of pressure. Yeah. Of the sacrifices the father makes to make the son successful. Yeah. Where the father dictates what the, fa- the son should be. And the son is not a full self. Hence, the son must listen to the father. It is authoritarianism in a, a family dynamic. It is the, the, there is a central figure who runs the family and all must obey. And that is Neil to his father. Contrasting Neil to Keaton. Keaton, which has a different version of leadership, who isn't a tyrant, who doesn't want to, to, to be an authoritarian, who wants to see Neil as a actual, real, full, complete person and not an instrument to the next rung of the social ladder. Um, and in that conflict, we see a young man in crisis, legitimate crisis. He has a love, he has a passion, he has a calling, and that is to act versus the pressure placed on him by his family to follow a career in medicine. And a huge part of his, of his love of acting, a huge part of, you know, forming the dead poet society again at Welton, the form, the, 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 the purpose of all of this is transgression, right? Transgression and, uh, and independence are a form of freedom for Neil. Um, where you know he's a he's a kid his love for acting is is beautiful but a huge part of of that passion i think is being able to say i can be someone else than you laid out for me father a huge part of that is being able to do something that is in opposition to what his dad laid out for him and so he finds joy in those little transgressions however you know i'd like to add a layer to that because if I'm reading you correctly, you're you're saying that for Neil, it's about acting out, right? It's about rebellion. Not entirely, but the, I think that's a huge part of it. it. It is. But however, if it were just acting out in the, the, the story, he'd be the other characters, right? Right. He's actually great at acting. He actually really is. Yeah. I mean, the character and also the actor who plays him is fantastic. Robert Sean Leonard is a, a, a wonderful actor and breathes such life into this role. But, you know, he, he gets cast in a piece like Midsummer Night's Dream by the great bard William Shakespeare, but also that is a piece about fantasy and is a piece about 
uh, leaving your your regular environment and joining a more magical world. And he brings for like a 17 year old, an incredible depth and truth to puck that I have rarely seen on stage. And I've seen and performed and teched and worked so many productions of Midsummer Night's Dream that, you know, you think you've seen everything, but he brings a real, uh, a real beauty to puck that shows you that this character is not just, uh, you know, flying in the wind is not just reading a flyer and saying, this is how I act out. He's really, truly gifted. Right. It's not a transgression. Right. He doesn't actually want to harm his father. Sure. Right. It, it, he doesn't do that because he hates his father. Quite the opposite. He does that because he has a yearning to be free. Sure. Part of that means pushing against the paternal forces and yeah. separating yourself and trying to figure out your own voice in this weirdness called existence. Sure. So you're right in that respect, but to call it a transgression to me almost says that it at its heart is about hurting his dad, which it never is. If it was about hurting his father, he would have rubbed it in his father's face, but he doesn't. He hides it from his dad. He hides it from his dad because he wants to get away with it. He wants to get away with it because he really wants to do it. And he knows if, if, if his father knows, he can't do it. So to me, it's, it's less about a transgression and more about a true, genuine, artistic calling that Keaton awakes in him. The, the irony is here that he gives his first and final performance. And in that, his father takes him out of Keaton, or takes him out of his prep school that he does, in fact, love, and says, you're going to military school, you're going to become a doctor, and that's it. And there's this really tense moment when he is arguing with his father. When he says to his father, he says for the first time, you've never asked me how I feel. His father looks and goes, how do you feel? And he can't say anything. Mm. And to me, that is the tragedy of the character, Neil. His father gave him an opening where he could have said, I love my school, I don't want to leave it. He could have said, acting is more important to me. He could have said, you want me to be a doctor, but I don't want to be a doctor. Being a doctor is the worst idea I've ever heard. He could have said a million different things, but this is where we see the four pillars coming back to hurt Neil. What do I mean by that? Mm. Discipline, tradition, honor, excellence. He's been conditioned to not talk about how he feels. His father is the authority figure. And when he first starts to lash out against his dad, his dad says, fine, talk to me. Tell me how you feel. He doesn't have any words. The actor is out of language. And that is so deeply tragic. This is a little bit of a boomerang, but as you talked about this, I've had kind of a, I've just been thinking about the structure of the movie and the characters and the attention that's placed on each character and Keating and his obsession with uh, helping the boys to break conformity, his, uh, his objective to help each boy sound his barbaric yop focuses his attention from the beginning on Todd, who seems like the reticent one, who seems like the one who is in trouble who seems like the one who has the most difficult uphill battle of all of them, when, surprisingly, the character of Neil, who is kind of the leader of his pack, who is 
charming, handsome, totally charismatic, happy-go-lucky, a joyous person is actually the one who's been in crisis the entire time. And had Heating noticed that over Todd's reticence, over his quiet, things might have gone differently. And this isn't to blame that character, but there is a sort of tragic um, sense of the happenstance of fate, of the sort of vicissitudes of, of fate here, where Keating decided to focus his energy on helping Todd break out of his shell, when in fact the person whose, uh, whose life was in danger was Neil, which feels so very, um, so very relevant to our times and our, our own awareness and our own ability to be cognizant of what's going on around us and pay attention to those who are in the most pain. Does that make sense? Totally, because in so many other stories, it would be Todd who would be in jeopardy. Right. It'd be Todd who'd be the one who would want to take his life. Todd, who has always felt like a failure. Todd, who has lived in the shadow of an older brother. Todd, who can't even speak to other people with confidence. However, this movie takes that narrative and it does flip it where it is Neil, the charismatic, charming leader who gets straight A's and is good at everything, is the one who is deeply in an existential crisis who says, I would rather die than give up acting. God, and you can see it in the final uh, scenes before he takes his life. You can see... Uh, after the play happens and his father unexpectedly shows up, the way that he delivers that final monologue, the way he's pulled out of the dressing room and is unable to celebrate with his friends who are so proud of him, the way Keating rushes to his side and tries to congratulate him on the wonderful performance that he just gave because he sees something at that moment when it is literally too late. He wants to pull Neil away from his father to congratulate him. He wants to pause. He wants to stall. And then Neil gets in the car and they leave. And Keating watches, feeling completely impotent, thinking, my responsibility as a teacher is to know, is to be in the know. And there's nothing that I can do at this point. But here is the ultimate crux of your question of what is more important, your acts or your legacy, what you actually do versus what is remembered of you. Because yeah. Neil is the only character that has a legacy in this movie because he's the only character that perishes. And the focus on Todd in the first part of the movie as the character in crisis, why it comes back, because Todd is the one that ultimately needs to break conformity. He is the one that needs to become brave enough to stand against the oppressive weight to do what is expected of you. And what does Todd do? At the very end of the movie, he takes the legacy of Neil when he sees Keaton come back into the classroom after he had been scapegoated for the responsible for Neil's death, which is absurd. After an institution says we're going to burn an innocent man rather than take responsibility for ourselves, when that happens, it is Todd who says, oh, captain, my captain. Yeah. And he stands on his desk. And because of that act of courage that it took 
a whole feature length movie for this character to get to, the other characters follow suit and salute their captain, letting him know Keaton, who was scapegoated wrongfully for the death of a troubled youth, that he actually did his job and taught these boys. And he says, thank you. Ah, it's emotional. Yeah, it is. Uh, And this was... It's got me all wrapped up. Yeah, it is emotional. And honestly, this was the first time that I had watched Dead Poet Society since Robin Williams' death. And I think I'm not at all alone in in feeling and in mourning for the loss of not only that talent, but that person um, who... let me answer so your, much. Let me answer your question. Yeah. It's both. Wow. Okay. It's both. What is more important, who you are or how you're remembered? Well, who you are determines how you're remembered. It is both. And the lesson of Keaton, the lesson of Robin Williams is dare to live boldly. Mm. You know, and if you dare to live boldly, if you are authentically who you are, and you true and you truly strive to do something great and it doesn't have to be in robin williams style greatness like the one of the greatest comedic and dramatic actors of our time it doesn't have to be that big but if you dare to do that you will leave a legacy that people are proud of that people will at the end of it in the face of unbelievable pain and blood and pressure and and an institution that says, you must act this way or I will punish you, you'll be able to stand tall on your fucking desk and say, oh, captain, my captain. I think that's beautiful. And and I agree with you. And in many, many ways, I agree with you. I think the challenge that I want to offer here is not even really a challenge. It's just a a bidding to stand up on your desk and look at things from a different perspective. Um And to do that, the first thing I want to do is rewind to the scenes just before Neil takes his life um, and the ritual that is enacted before this happens. After the fight that he has with his father and he he goes to bed and his parents are asleep and he's alone in this quiet house and it's snowing outside, he takes off his shirt and he takes the crown of berries and twigs that he wore as Puck Uh, that he took home with him, and he crowns himself with it. And there's an image of him standing beside the open window with the snow falling, with this berry crown, where he evokes uh, a sort of Greek god or a laureate, uh, a poet with a crown of laurels, or, you know, just a, a, a satyr in the middle of a hedonistic festival. And he looks out the window with this, um, with this great sadness in his eye, but he looks to us so divine and so sublime in the moments before he takes his life. And it draws a really specific line, I think, to the work that's being studied by these boys in their school, to the work that John Keating is teaching to them, the romantic poets above all, um, and I don't think we can ignore, especially here on The Midnight Myth, the uh, tremendous resemblance of the names of John Keating and John Keats, 
who was a uh, one of the romantic poets who was friends with Byron and Shelley, who was part of that gang, but who was not at all appreciated or loved in his time and is now considered one of the greatest English poets of all time. We draw this line back to the romantics who saw very little line between life and death, who were constantly consumed by this glory of, of death and the afterlife, who were obsessed with memento mori, the reminders that you will die, who were tied so closely to nature. And when one of them did die, when any romantic poet died, his good friend Byron or Shelley uh, would write him an elegy in the tradition of Milton and would write a poem where instead of talking about John Keats and his death, they would talk about Adonis and his death in the beautiful plains of, uh, of ancient Greece. And they would talk about how he was crowned with laurels and how there was no one on this earth like him. And there is a level of, uh, uh, of sublimation of these individuals whose deaths were in fact bloody and gruesome and before their time, John Keats died age 25, I think, of tuberculosis. Um, and there's, there's a, a kind of, of glorification of early death, a glorification of submitting yourself and your life in favor of a quote-unquote romantic death that is evoked in this final moment of Neil. And I just want to issue that kind of as a, a challenge to change your perspective, to change all of our perspective in the way that we look at artists in particular, the way that we look at celebrity, the way that we look at the genius, the way that we look at anyone who we revere and are suddenly surprised by the fact that they feel pain in their personal life or somehow make excuses and say, if Robin Williams wasn't in such tremendous pain, he wouldn't have been able to make such glorious art. Or if Van Gogh wasn't so terribly depressed, he wouldn't have given us Starry Night. He wouldn't have given us the incredible paintings that he did. I think we have to re-examine saying things like, if Kurt Cobain wasn't tortured, he wouldn't have given us Nirvana. I think we have to remind ourselves that the life is more important than the art. And that's a hard thing to say as someone who considers themselves an artist. But I think it is a moment of standing up on your desk and looking down at the verses that we've all contributed and saying, you know, if it were me, if I was in the anguish and I was a genius, if I was a great artist, would I trade my art for my pain? Would I trade my art for my life or my loved one's life? And that's just something that I offer here. Man, that's a really beautiful sentiment. And it makes me think in particular about Robin Williams's career as a brilliant and amazing actor, comedian, who has brought so much joy to my my life, and I think the lives too, of millions, yeah. uh, to some, he is the best. And I think we would all be better off if we didn't have his career 
but he didn't have his mental illness. And I don't know if Robin Williams's creative success is linked at all to his mental illness. I don't know that. Um, And I'm not trying to say that it was or it wasn't, but I'm saying that when we ask ourselves the fundamental question, what's the value of human life? No one should have to die for their art ever. And dying for your art, art, which means so much to me that I have a whole podcast dedicated to discussing and dissecting and celebrating the beauty of art and social science and philosophy. These things mean so much to me that I literally record my thoughts about it and share it on the internet, but it is not worth dying for. And the idea of the noble death as it was in ancient Rome has remanifested itself as the noble death of the artist. That tradition of if you die young, but you did it for a noble cause, it's okay. Cast such a large shadow that it manifests itself now that like, you know what? You blew your brains out, but you made two really kick-ass rock albums. Mm. And that trade-off is not equitable to the value of human life, both economically, both philosophically, uh, and spiritually in every way, shape or form that that trade-off is not okay. It is far better and more nobler to live proudly, tallly and happily than it is to create something beautiful that will last beyond your life, but it costs you your life to make. What's the point if you have to die for it? There are very few causes worth laying down your life. They do exist. There is a legitimate historical and moral argument for martyrdom. But very rarely does that exist in the realm of entertainment. It's a line that we can trace back to Aristotle saying there is no great genius without some touch of madness. It's a myth that we have accepted and romanticized just like the 19th century poets and is pervasive in all of us. And it's a moment, I think, that we must all look to those that we admire and beyond and say, it's more important that you continue to grace this earth and that I take care of you and that I exhibit stewardship for your shared existence on this plane with me than I laugh at your jokes. Because gather ye rosebuds while ye may. There's a limited amount of time that we have to write our verse. And the more time you have the more verses you can contribute. And cutting that time short arbitrarily, um, cutting it short when you could have prevented it, is never okay. The value of human life is impossible to quantify in a pure economic sense because humans can bring joy, they can bring happiness, They can bring things that are just unbounded and unknown as far as we can tell in the rest of the universe. We don't know if there's another human race out there in the stars that can do something like we can do. 
So while we are here, we must contribute our verse. And until next time. Be kind. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Captain.